0: things are so much more complex than we thought they were before and we learn to get out of ourselves a little bit that it's not just about us and what we're going to have for dinner and what we want to watch on television that evening but but that there is a world out there that that is hurting and that needs to be um, considered and valued and cared for
1: this is a podcast about two things helping those with urgent needs in front of us today, and improving the road so others can walk it more safely in the future. Welcome to The Better Samaritan, where we're learning how to do good better, and we're grateful to be doing that with you as you listen, whether this is in everyday interactions or complex humanitarian challenges. I'm Kent and co-director of the Humanitarian Disaster Institute at Wheaton College, joined by my colleagues Jamie Ayton and our producer, Laura Finch. Today we're thrilled to be talking with Paul McLaughlin, and Mark McMinn. They're both psychologists and co-authors of A Time for Wisdom, Knowledge, Detachment, Tranquility, Transcendence, from Templeton Press. Mark and Paul, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we're looking forward to this conversation. I wanted to start by reading the definition you you first in your books sort of say it's impossible or not. Maybe you don't use the word impossible. You can't define wisdom, and then you say we kind of have to give a definition anyways. So I wanted to read that and just say if, see if you could unpack this in everyday language for us as we get started. So the definition from your book is wisdom is an embodied disposition or act involving critical contemplation. Purgation and purification of knowledge with practical implications, leading to self-transcendence, tranquility, and elevated insight. I really like this. It made me slow down, and then you unpack it. But I wonder if you were if you were explaining this definition to a thirteen-year-old, you know, how would you define uh, unpack this definition in a way that you know sort of breaks it down for us in this simple way? What are these five elements? Where are they important?
0: Well, uh, this is Mark. I'll, I'll jump in. I mean, there's so many parts to this, and, and I want to give you know credit to Paul because he's the primary author on this, and I think most of the definition is Paul's, but I, I'm intrigued by this idea of a 13-year-old, so I'm going to jump in and say something on that. Uh, maybe the best illustration would be the, the time that the 13-year-old was at the skate park recently, right, and, and uh, forgot to bring the knee pads, and fell down and scratched the knee terribly and so wisdom is embodied that's the very first part of this definition that that uh, we live in bodies we experience the world in bodies and wisdom comes through our bodies so and oftentimes it's through the painful things that we experience in the world that brings us to a a place of wisdom so i wanted to jump in on that word embodied and and the 13 year old example Um, Paul, you have probably way yeah. more to say about the the very rich definition here.
2: Yeah, I mean, the first thing I want to tell the 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 person is that I guess all the things that you think you know, you might not know so well, mm-hmm. and 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 it takes you know, it takes a certain um, really, I think, sitting with what it is that you know about your family, your life, your friends, and. You know with with time and, and patience and and humility as you as you were just talking about that what you know can be elevated can kind of be can go up some some steps to some sort of new way of learning about the things that you you think that you know
3: well paul and mark i just want to let you know that for your book, I've learned everything I need to know from social media and the internet, as well as all the conversations that have been happening. So I'm not really sure if we need to be talking about wisdom or not because I've downloaded it all. Um, so that's I bring that up, you know, being a bit facetious here. But I know one of the things that you talk about in your book is just about the context in which we live, where information is at our fingertips. But I think sometimes we mistake uh, information like the type i was just sharing with what is actually wisdom how do you two think about those differences so paul let's let's start with you what's the difference between information and wisdom well i would say
2: information would be those those bits of knowledge they're 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 sort of you know little sort of pieces of of information of data that we have and i would say wisdom is when we kind of take all those you know pieces of information in and they accumulate you know to To some level now with with wisdom, how do we use this? How do we apply this to our life based on our history, um, on the history of others that we know to where we can find some insight into questions, maybe that are really, really difficult, if not impossible to to answer, sort of shining some light uh, in areas that we really the information itself just doesn't give us answers to.
1: And what's the, um, going off of that, what's the, what's the cost of not having wisdom as both of you have studied wisdom, think about being embodied, think about taking on the hard questions. Uh, what's the cost if we don't get wiser as you've done this research? And you, you know, I, I love that about your book that you, you, as you did the research, it was a lot really with people and with people in their lives. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, not to be a
2: bummer, but I think it's what we have now in a lot of ways, I think it's this, it's what we're finding ourselves in this, this, this deep, entrenched uh, uh, polarization, really hard to, to communicate with people that, that we don't, we don't see, uh, we don't see the same life the same way as
0: the the word humility keeps popping up in, in the conversation. And I think it absolutely should. Uh, because as Paul says, we're in a particular cultural moment where we don't actually, as a society, demonstrate a lot of wisdom. We're, we're we're so inclined to listen to what we already believe and not very inclined to consider the other perspective, to try to find the valid points that someone on the other side of the aisle might be making. And the cost is a sort of increasing polarization and uh, caricaturing and Uh, a dismissal of things that actually we need to be considering.
3: And Paul, I wonder, could you unpack for us the kind of key principles that you and Mark share about of how to actually go about cultivating wisdom?
2: Yeah, I I think as Mark was just talking about, you know, humility is is certainly key. Um, And then I would say, as as in the definition, you know, that critical contemplation, that ability to, to sit with and really reflect on, um, what it is that we that we think that we know, and then a detachment, uh, a, a certain humility with our own knowledge, and learning to sort of let go of you know what we hold on so tightly to sometimes, and, and don't want to don't want to surrender, and then um, transcendence. I mean, uh, Mark and I are both very much interested in religion and spirituality, and we see
1: that as certainly an important element in how
2: in how wisdom wisdom develops
1: and following up on that what what are some specific practices if you, you think about sitting sitting with ref, uh and reflecting critically detachment can you give some examples of how how people do this in their lives or can do this in their lives that's effective
2: yes certainly um certain spiritual practices um you know the, the sitting in in silence. Uh, this sort a of Quaker practice of of sort of listening to to the inner light as you you know meditate or contemplate. Um, Lexio divina is a is a practice that that I, I personally have have done throughout the years and found found a lot of a lot of help. Um, and
3: and Paul, that's something that we actually do quite regularly in our program, and something that Kent's brought. Into the way that we do a lot of our work with students, and you know, even opening up our classes sometimes. For those that aren't familiar with that practice, can you unpack that just a little bit more?
2: Sure, sure. Lectio divina mean is a, quite an ancient practice, from what I understand, of of sitting uh, with scripture and uh, reading over a particular passage and sort of gnawing on it. I think uh, chewing the cud, as one theology professor I had referred to it as, <laughs> we really let the verse um the 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 verse the verse the the words kind of savor it and and see what in the passage seems to speak to you what you keep coming back to a particular word or phrase and and allowing that to sort of wash over you and it's really of a slow chewing meditative way of reading scripture
1: great so that's that's an example of yes we, we've really enjoyed doing that and sl- slowing down which is as you said it Chewing it more than just kind of quickly downloading knowledge like Jamie was say, saying earlier. And how about for you, Mark? What Are there other practices that you found in other people that you yourself have found uh, are really helpful for cultivating wisdom?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I, I have a couple thoughts on this. One is, um, well, I want to say it this way. When you walk into a bookstore, what section do you go to? But then I realize we don't really have many bookstores anymore. So I suppose <laughs> the online version of this would be, where do you go browse? And, and, and I think the habit we mostly develop is we go to the section that we're interested in and we pick up books that we think we'll agree with. And we might even sort of thumb through the pages and say, oh, this looks like a good book. And by a good book, we mean I'll agree with this. Well, so last Friday, Paul and I had coffee at our local coffee shop, and he mentioned a book to me that um, that I immediately bought and started reading, and I don't agree with it. but But that's what I like about my interactions with Paul and with wisdom is we can actually push each other to look at different things. And what I find in this book that I don't agree with there's a lot of things I do agree with. It's like a different political perspective than what I'm used to. But as I read it, I'm thinking I'm being challenged, I'm being pushed, I'm being corrected for some things that I've I've misperceived. And so, so there's a kind of practical example of, of wisdom by going after the things that are different than we would naturally go after. A uh, second example that comes to mind is this book all started with Paul's uh, dissertation research years ago when we did a, a mentoring program at a local church on helping young adults develop wisdom. And one of the things that we worked out in that program was uh, not, not cinching down answers. We gave, we gave these young adults difficult situations, like your friend is dying of cancer and you have some real questions about your faith that are emerging. What do you do? And we did not sort of rush to answer it, to kind of give a a, a platitude or a Christian cliche for how that can work itself out. We let the students and their mentors sit and wrestle with that hard question, that hard space. Uh, It's a space, Jamie, I know you've written about uh, in in various ways. And, and, And so I think part of wisdom is not trying to come too quickly to clean, neat answers to the big, complex problems of life.
3: Hmm. Yeah, that's such a hard place to be, isn't it? To set in those moments of difficulty and to allow ourselves to struggle with it. And and I want to make sure that we do come back to that. But I want to kind of stay with that um, example you gave Mark of going to the bookstore and kind of what section or what books do you pick up? And, And with that, how do you know like which book is actually wisdom? And what's maybe rhetoric? How do we distinguish being able to identify what's actually wisdom?
0: This is when we promote the book, right, Paul? We say our <laughs> book's
3: about <it>. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go Right for the Templeton Press book. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the one. <Yeah. laughs> the one. <laughs> well,
0: I, I, might, I might point to the process more than the product. So that, that mm-hmm. wisdom mm-hmm. is reading a diversity of perspectives and looking at a multiple uh, angles at a thing. Rather than saying that any given book is going to sort of give us the, the full answer on wisdom, I think wisdom will come by reading various perspectives, uh, all of which are probably biased and partly wrong, and all of which are probably uh, based on some truthful thing that I need to consider too. So um, I would think more about process, I think, than product.
2: Yeah, and I, I can just add to that. I would say one of my favorite favorite writers, um, speakers is Ronald Rollheiser. And he when I, when I read him when I was younger, I remember him really talking about carrying the tension and, and I remember in his books, he didn't always necessarily give answers. He sort of raised more questions and really, really invited the reader to like sit in the ambiguity and, and the tension of, of left, right debates, discussions. So that's, that's one thing I would say is, is the writer, is the, is the book inviting you to actually sit with ambiguity or, or is it sort of collapsing the space and saying, this is the answer, do this?
1: And then what's the um, what's the moment of moving forward? i found like too often, even in my own life, sometimes I will stay superficial and quick, go fast, or else I can think, oh, this is so complex, I feel paralyzed. How does wisdom, and how to, or how does really the results of your research you know, help us to thread that needle of sitting with perspective, the things we've been talking about for the last few minutes, sitting with those perspectives, all that, but then also... You know having the the confidence to act
0: yeah boy um such a such a great question and i i um i think we have to act we could be absolutely handcuffed in uncertainty and so we do the best we can and we move forward and we uh the better samaritan right i mean we 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 try to act to make the world a better place with what knowledge we have Mm -hmm. at the same time as we humbly recognize, we may not have all the knowledge that we think we do or that we want to have. And so we need to continually question ourselves and challenge ourselves and learn new things. But in the meantime, absolutely, we need to keep moving, keep moving yeah. forward. That's, that's what life calls us to. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And yeah, no, I would say, I would say this is where the, this is where the section on tranquility maybe speaks, speaks to this a little bit of, of, making decisions and acting, do you find a sense of tranquility or peace, mental clarity, sort of a certain um, kind of calm in your choices, peace as, as um, sort of the the Jesuit whole idea of discernment of making decisions. Do you find peace with, with the decision that you've come to? Mm -hmm. So if it, if it tends to increase the tension or increase the friction or, or, you know, God forbid even violence, you know, that might not be um, the, the right, choice the wise choice going forward
3: you know one of the things i really appreciated in your book and also just having read some of the other things that you all have done over the years is really an intentionality of bringing in both faith and science to how we go about cultivating wisdom and just curious if you could share a little bit as you were working on this book how did you go about integrating both faith and data in your approach to writing
0: yeah so i'll I'll jump in here this is what I've done um, for my career and I, I really I really love science I mean that's partly why I do it but the other thing is it, it provides a nice answer when people s- sort of consider the hubris of writing a book on wisdom or a previous book I wrote on virtue and 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 I had a colleague say how does it feel to 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 know that you actually wrote the book on virtue and i so quickly say wait 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 that's not me i'm not like the wisest human being i'm not the most <laughs> virtuous human being i just love science and so so you know there is a rich science to wisdom that uh, that needs to be explored and understood mm-hmm. And it and my faith i can't separate my faith from any part of life so i can't read science without it bringing into in, into my own consciousness, the deep faith commitments that I've had for for decades. So um, for for me, it's a it's kind of nice to be able to say, no, I'm not I'm not proclaiming myself to be a sage or, or the exemplar of wisdom. But I really love the science of wisdom, and I've learned a lot as I've studied it, and it connects deeply with my experience of faith as well.
1: What what's something for each? Just c- continuing that, but then. You mentioned the, the research in science. What's something um, each of you learned in this research that you surprised you about wisdom? Oh, that wouldn't have, you know, I, w- I wouldn't have come to that. or That's counterintuitive or something. But what, what's been surprising or unexpected that came out of this research that you did? Well, I
2: would say for me, um in some ways it was this is sort of sidestepping your question a bit so i apologize but it was the lack of of really the um the religion and spirituality in the scientific literature on wisdom Hmm. so it was sort of this is this is kind of common notions of wisdom from history and then this is what we do now with science and kind of leaving the the sort of history in, in the past and I think that was one of the one of the things that Mark and I were trying to do. Sort of, no, we don't just want to look at, at at the past for definitions of things, but also want to include it because it's still very much alive in many people's lives and, and traditions. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and I'd add one of the things that surprised me is that there is such a rich science of wisdom. I, uh, Paul was a doctoral student coming out of a master's program in philosophy, and he came to my office second year of his program and i was his faculty mentor and he said i want to do my dissertation on wisdom and i said well paul that's a great topic but psychologists don't really study wisdom so he went to the library and proved me wrong it turns out there's a there's a there's a large especially european literature on the science of wisdom so so one of the surprises for me is just how much is there and Hmm. most of it comes out of the developmental psychology literature so as a clinical psychologist i just hadn't heard of it um, but it's, it's deep and rich and important, and, and the work that's been done is, is quite impressive. So I'm just glad to know about it.
3: And, you know, many of the people that are listening to the, the podcast are either working with others who are facing adversity, or they themselves as helpers may be experiencing adversity as they try to work with those who are suffering. Curious, what, what do you see as the relationship between adversity and wisdom?
0: Yeah, we actually uh, we spend some time on that in the book. I I, um, I I think it would be too simplistic to say that wisdom only comes through suffering, but I think that's one significant path of wisdom. Is that we um, when we when we suffer, when we sit with people who suffer, we learn that things are so much more complex than we thought they were before, and we learn to get out of ourselves a little bit, that it's not just about us and what we're going to have for dinner and what we want to watch on television that evening, but but that there is a world out there that, and inside of us that is hurting and that needs to be um, considered and valued and cared for. And, and I think all of this uh, leads us to multiple perspectives. I think one of the best ways to think about wisdom is holding multiple perspectives on a thing. And when we suffer, and when we sit pe- with people who suffer, we get multiple perspectives.
2: Yeah, well, one of the, the forms of the adversity might just be the the challenge of, of so much um, new information that we take in, and, and the challenge of other people's perspectives, other people's truths as as they know it. And kind of allowing that again to you know, maybe break up a bit how we see how we see wisdom, how we see the world, and to kind of allow yourself to sit with that tension, and ultimately, I think sitting with other people who who hold those other views, and that can be very challenging. It's one of the I think the benefits that the Mark and I have as being clinical psychologists is we sit with people, you know, all the time who have different different views than we do different perspectives and who are oftentimes struggling very much with with their what it is that they're
0: experiencing one of the really oh
1: go ahead
0: well one of the really fascinating things in the research that came out of europe a long time ago was that when they looked at clinical psychologists they turned out to score really high on these wisdom measures that they had developed and I think it's related to what Paul's saying. I don't, I don't think it's like some, somehow psychology is a magic pill that makes you wise, but I, I think it is sitting with people in, in their pain, in their struggle and their in their differences and we, and we do that day after day and ultimately it ends up producing some wisdom.
1: Hmm. I think that's, a, that's encouraging when the, the weight for for us to think about the people we work with and people, listening, who work with people who are suffering in disasters or refugees or different folks, uh, I just appreciate and want to highlight that that feels heavy, of course, you know, to to be sitting with people, what, what you're doing as psychologists, um, people working with refugees, people working with um, systemic poverty and all of its effects feel the weight of that. And, you know, I just wanted to underline that as I found that encouraging, just as you said it, that they're there is also a benefit, we don't want to do it for selfish reasons, but a benefit of wisdom that can grow and also being in those moments. So I, I hope that can be encouraging for someone who's hearing that and who's feeling the weight of sitting in suffering with people and working in suffering that is a hard long road to improve. Um, and so uh, I think it's, it's encouraging that we can, can grow in wisdom that hopefully will then allow us to help others uh, in, in improved ways as we keep on learning.
3: And as we think about that benefit of wisdom that can come out of suffering, what are some ways that we can make sure, though, that we don't accidentally romanticize suffering and its connection to wisdom?
2: Uh, as a Roman Catholic, that, that's a hard question for me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: With
2: the, you know.
3: And the reason why I ask is I had someone when I was finishing, um, getting near the end of my cancer treatment some time ago, who said, Jamie, I'm jealous of you. And I remember just paused over coffee, like, what do you mean? And they, they went on to say something to the effect of, well, you just must be learning so much and growing spiritually so much right now. And I remember thinking, I would <laughs> gladly trade places if you want some of this wisdom. Uh, um, you know, And I had no answer for that person of what I was learning at that time. I was really mm-hmm. kind of struggling. So that's kind of where that question's coming from me.
0: Yeah, boy, that that anecdote certainly fleshes out the question and and the experience too, Jamie. I I, I don't think suffering is ever good. I um, appreciated Kent, what Kent just shared because, uh, yes, suffering might lead to some benefits in our life, but it is never something that we want to look back and say, "Oh, that was good. I'm so glad I suffered." We don't. We that's why it's called suffering. It's, it's awful.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. we don't want to stay uh, stay locked in Good Friday. We want to remember that the, the resurrection is, is is you know a couple days away and that that's I think the, the emphasis of, 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 the, of the faith. and I think we can get stuck in you know in notions of, of the cross and redemptive suffering and we want to, to allow it to. Teach us to grow through that and and so often in, in treatment, you know, when you're in asking people or inviting them to kind of sit with their pain, sit with it, and grieving losses as as we say. Um, there's like this, so is this it? Is this all I'm supposed to do? Is just sit in this and and I think the hope is that something new will come which we necess- might not not necessarily be seeing
1: just yet. Thanks. That's well said. Um, I'll let Jamie ask you a last question. Just one other thing I wanted to pull up from the book that I found helpful as we work on humility here and you did did a summary of definitions of humility. And you say there are three main parts. One, an accurate view of self, which is neither too high nor too low. Two, considering others. And three, being teachable, open to learning from those with different perspectives. And uh, that's definitely comes out in the way that you, uh, discuss wisdom, um, here, Jamie, I want to see if you had any other questions and then we can go into our, our quick five questions.
3: Yeah. I just kind of wanted to circle back. Um, as you all early on, we kind of talking about some of those principles of how we can cultivate wisdom. One, one of them was that idea of detachment. I'm wondering, could you maybe each just briefly highlight maybe one detachment strategy that you found that can help cultivate wisdom?
0: So one of the things I've been experimenting with the last six months or so is a, uh, a Ignatian practice called the daily examine, where at the end of the day, I just sort of slowly and carefully reflect back on the day behind me and sort of where I experienced God in the day and uh, where I fell short, where I um, where I was particularly grateful. Uh, and all these things are—they're sort of metacognitive. They sort of back me out and have me look at my life not as the central actor, but as a as a person that's sort of observing what has happened and what. And then I anticipate the following day as part of the practice too, which also allows me to observe what might be happening the, the next day. All these are sort of, I think, it's a, it's a historical Christian practice, but it's, it's detachment. It's hel- helping me step back and take a look from another perspective.
2: Yeah, I, I would say something that Mark mentioned earlier, which is, which I think a, a big part of the book is that multiple perspectives, multiple viewpoints, and that you know, that might not seem initially like a detachment strategy, but but it kind of takes you out of yourself to you know sit on the other side of a particular issue to consider what another person's perspective might be and to actually kind of embody that for a time. As, as as we mentioned in the book, that you know there's sort of the two sides there of the issue, my side and the wrong side. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Instead of kind of especially especially these days. I think that's one of the ways in which the book, which in some ways is odd because it's you know, somewhat maybe self-healthy and at the other at the other end it's a sort of a social commentary, but I think that's that's one of the bridges between those two. Is to take another viewpoint to consider that there's more than two, so it's going to be multiple viewpoints, and to take you out of your own kind of rigid space, which you know often has emotional uh, elements to it as well, which can be very painful.
1: Hmm. Well, thank you both for for this. I feel yeah, some of this wisdom you talked about, kind of slowing down and talking. So I know for me, even just having this chance to slow down and think about wisdom and what practices are in my life and what aren't uh, are really helpful, both in your book as well as in this conversation. We wanted to pivot now to our quick five questions that we like to ask everybody at the end of the conversation. So how about for simplicity, we could go Paul first and then Mark second on all five of these. And um, we start with what's a book that you're currently reading that you are enjoying well, I'm actually
2: rereading a book of an author I just mentioned, or oh, I mentioned previously, Ronald Rollheiser's um, The Holy Longing. Um, and I find that book to always be very rewarding and filled with wisdom.
0: I'm, uh, I'm reading a book called A Biography of Loneliness uh, by an English scholar who is making the case that the emotional angst of being alone is sort of a, a, an invention of modernity and have really found it challenging and interesting
3: so this is why i saw on facebook that you must have been posting about french fries and loneliness the other day <laughs> <laughs>
0: so, so you know my wife lisa and i are writing a book called the power of slow and one of the chapters is about isolation and community so i've been doing a lot of research on loneliness and it's fascinating what i find finding.
3: well and Mark and Paul. Uh, again, we'll start with Paul here. What's a book you've given away more than others over the year?
2: <laughs> oh, dear, that's a great question. I think a book that I've given away more than any other would be um, Henry Nowen's "The Return of the Prodigal Son." Hmm. I every time I see it in a bookstore, I buy it, and I just I just find that book to always be again rewarding and filled with wisdom. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, great book. That is so...
2: Oh,
1: go ahead, Paul. No, I just, just great, but I just can keep my help myself from saying great book. I agree. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's so interesting to me because the book I immediately thought of is also Henry Nowen, but it's the one he wrote right before that one. It's called The Inner Voice of Love, which is a book about his own suffering. And I've given away multiple copies over the years. All
1: right. Good shout out for Henry Nouwen here. Um... <laughs> Question number three: Is there something you're using right now that's helping you in productivity that you would share with us and tell us about? So it could be an app, a productivity method, a travel product, just something something that helps you with writing. Uh, what's something you're helping you're using that's helping you to be productive in your service?
2: Well, I'm just trying to really stick with the discipline of writing for at least an hour a day no matter what I do. And, um, I don't know if there's a particular product or anything like that I'm using. I do use copious amounts of coffee. So, I mean, that's one of my (laughs) 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 go-tos. Caffeine and
3: discipline, I guess. (laughs) Well, there's your next book right there.
1: (laughs) Hey, that's
2: that's a great title. Yeah.
0: And I just told you I'm writing a book called The Power of Slow, so I'm not sure I can answer the question about productivity. I, I, in, a, in a paradoxical sense, um, my wife and I have this little farm where we grow berries and tend goats and things like that. I, it doesn't sound like it would make us more productive, but in some ways I think it does by just bringing more balance to life. So, So mm-hmm. I'd say growing strawberries.
3: Nice. And what do you do to renew your body and mind? Well, I've been a pretty avid
2: jogger in my life, and I would say that that's, that's been something that's really helped. I'm you know, currently living out here in Oregon, so when the sun does come out, I take advantage of it and go for a run and, or walk through the woods. and I just find just being outside, uh, being out in nature and, and really helps, really kind of clears my mind.
0: I have a similar response. I I played basketball at noon for, um, or or early in the mornings or noon, just recreationally for 25 years. And I I got to age 52 and I felt like my joints couldn't handle it anymore. So I stopped, took about 11 years off and then started again this year. And I've been playing basketball uh, once, two, two times, sometimes three times a week. And it's just been great. I have enjoyed being with a group of other people and the, the athleticism—well, I don't know if you can call it that anymore—but but the exercise of it has been really, really, really fun. So I've
1: enjoyed that. My son, my son, and a couple of his friends have gotten really into it. So I'm out in the driveway and feeling my feeling my age and the aches and aches and pains that come from playing with them uh, almost daily, and loving it as well. So, uh, yeah, that's great. Last question then, is there something that you're enjoying, especially that you're either listening to or watching, like a musical artist, a, a TV show, something on Netflix that that, uh, that you're enjoying and would like to tell us about?
2: Well, I've always been a big Radiohead fan, I suppose. That's, uh, and their music has always just been very, very meaningful to me. And so I usually don't go very long without you know doing a, a, a slow, um, listen to, to Radiohead album. I'll just kind of, you know, lay there. And of course the, the album from start to finish, not, not track bouncing around. So I would say that's something that recently, uh, um, and can consistently has been a part of my life is their music.
3: And I don't know if listeners heard the little,
1: Oh, right after you said that, but that was Kent. So, um, <laughs> I've been trying proselytizing with Jamie, trying to get him in, into Radiohead as well. So one of my favorites. So that's great. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wonderful. Well, I,
0: and I recently heard of someone who had watched the uh, Apple TV series Ted Lasso 27 times. I, I have not watched it that many times, but I may have watched it twice. And <laughs> I'll tell you, there's something to me that, uh, I mean, you know, you can... There, there's you know there's reasons to be critical of the show but the thing that i love about it is the joy that they actually bring uh, happiness into the hardest places of life and the main character is one who exudes kindness in a world that doesn't seem very kind anymore so uh, i've really enjoyed that show
1: well, kind of slowing down to exude kindness and seek wisdom is a great place to land after this conversation. So thanks, thank you both for the work that you've done on better understanding wisdom and for sharing that with us in the book and conversation. I, I find it really helpful and inspiring to think about how, how I'm cultivating wisdom in my own life and, and knowing that I need to continue on that path as we seek, seek to do good better and seek to grow as people. So thanks for your time, uh, Paul and Mark. Thank you very much. Thanks Experience. for having us. Thanks for joining us for this conversation. Uh, so appreciate getting to do this along with you as you listen. And I hadn't thought about it quite in these terms before, but a lot of what we are trying to do and seeking to do good better, like we are on the Better Samaritan, is trying to become wiser. Uh, and so I appreciated the chance to slow down in this book and in this conversation to think, you know, how how, how am I? How are you? How can we become wiser uh, as part of becoming better people becoming the people we are called to be and also becoming better at serving and helping others so thanks for the conversation uh grateful to be on the journey with you
3: learn more about the humanitarian disaster institute at wheaton college
0: including our graduate degree and trauma certificate at the link in our show notes you can attend the program online or in person and stay in touch you can email us at producer at Thanks so much for bringing us along on your journey as we all endeavor to do good better.